Well, good morning. It's great to be uh, with you, and it's, uh, again, a real uh, privilege to be able to gather uh, in this way. Uh, deep into November, and we're still able to, to gather in person. We're, we're grateful for that. And for those of you who are uh, joining us online this morning, welcome, a warm welcome to, to everyone uh, this morning. Um, we're continuing in our Revelation series, if you've been uh, with us uh, at all in, in recent uh, weeks and months, uh, you'll know we've been working our way through the, the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking today at the reality of evil exposed, uh, the exposing, the unmasking of evil so that we can see it for what it is and all of its ugliness. And we're going to see that in quite graphic terms today, so I hope you're ready for that. You know, the best stories in history, I think, um, are timeless. Uh, when you read a really good story, it stands the test of time. You can relate to it no matter when you live because there's something about it that connects with your world, even though the world of the story is very different. So the story of the Odyssey is this sort of 3,000-year-old uh, story of Odysseus trying to get home, and, and most of us have never been captured by a one-eyed Mediterranean giant or kept prisoner on an island by a witch, but we know what it's like trying to get home and continually waylaid and distracted and stopped and blown off course, and, and we can kind of relate to that story even though we don't, we don't uh, relate to the specifics of that context. Or Romeo and Juliet is a great story because we know what it's like to, to feel a conflict between your heart and your family or your love and, and your duty. Even if we've never been to medieval Italy or, or, or you haven't bitten your thumb at someone and started a fight, you can still relate to the, the sort of broader things that is going on in the story. And great stories do that. They, they're timeless. They're very, uh, very specifically set. But they also speak to something that's integrally human that is true for all of us, no matter where we live our lives. And the book of Revelation is like that. The book of Revelation functions like a great story. It draws us in. And it presents us at one level with a very specific world. The first century world of the church being persecuted and killed. By a collaboration at times between Jerusalem and Rome. And so what we're going to see, even in the passage that we're going to read now, chapter 17 and 18, is you get these two, Jerusalem and Rome, together again. Like they were, if you remember back in chapter 13 and 14, we'll see a scarlet beast ridden by a prostitute. And we'll see that... that those represent, at least as I read them, they represent Rome, representing state power as the scarlet beast, and Jerusalem representing religious power as the prostitute. And that Rome eventually turns on Jerusalem and sets her on fire and destroys her. And that actually happened in A.D. 70. If you were to, you could go to Jerusalem today and you'll find that there's no temple there. It was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And so in a way, Revelation is a very specific story about events in the first century, particularly in the region of, of what we now call uh, Turkey and West Asia, 
But because it's a great story, it doesn't only speak to them. It also speaks to the same kind of patterns and structures of evil that take place throughout the history of the church. And so you and I can, can read Revelation and at one level say, this is about a very specific time frame but also say, yeah, but that's how evil always works. That's what the devil is always doing. He's always trying to destroy the church. He's always trying to lead the church into idolatry and sexual immorality and greed. He's always doing that. And so we can see that not only the events of the first century, but also of our own time in this very dramatic, lurid story. And this morning, what we're going to see is evil exposed, evil unmasked. We're going to see what evil is truly like behind all of the marketing and PR and, and the spin and what God's going to do about it. And there's great hope for us, uh, but it's also kind of graphic as well. And so we're going to turn and read from Revelation chapter 17 and then on into chapter 18 as well. If you've been with us, um, you'll know right at the beginning of our study uh, the, the book of Revelation itself says, blessed are those who hear the reading of this prophecy. And so we've made a commitment uh, to read uh, through the entire book of Revelation. So uh, as we're often, we're reading whole chapters or even two chapters like we are this morning. It's an extended reading, but I encourage you to follow along either in your Bibles or with the text as you'll find it in your worship folder and, 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 and work hard to stay engaged with the text. But let's begin at Revelation 17 and verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, and whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And as we saw when we looked at chapter 13, I think that's Rome. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a, gold, a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So I think the woman is Jerusalem, and I think the beast is Rome. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names haven't been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And you may know if you've if you've been to Rome, uh, the seven hills are a very uh, prominent feature of the city. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other hasn't yet come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. 
As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who haven't yet received royal power, but they're to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And many interpreters say that that's a description of the Caesars, the rulers of Rome. These are of one mind, and they have hand over their power, and they, ha- and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beasts. That's Rome. Will hate the prostitute, which I think is Jerusalem. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose for being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And this I saw, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, and mourning I will never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and horses, uh, cattle and sheep, horses, chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who 
gained wealth for her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all her wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is the word of God. Evil always hides, right? It, it doesn't want to be seen for what it is. So it disguises itself with whatever is available, right? That's why so much crime happens at night, because people don't want to be seen doing evil. It's why domestic violence and sexual assault are clouded in secrecy. And therefore, uh, adding shame to what is already physically damaging and emotionally traumatic, you have then the secrecy and the shame and the hiddenness as well. It's why people disguise evil using euphemisms, using turns of phrase that make evil sound less evil. So we don't kill unborn children. We support women's health. Or we're not racist. We are nationalists or simply controversial. It's why brothels and strip clubs have low seating lighting. It's why pornography is digitally manipulated to hide the reality and disguise it. It's why the first thing that Adam and Eve did on being exposed was to cover themselves with fig leaves and hide. Because that's what evil does. Evil hides. So one of the tasks of Christian witness in the world and preaching the scriptures is exposing e the exposing of evil so that people can see it. That's what this chapter does. We can think that it's loving to waffle about sin and make it as soft as possible, to say, I, I don't want to call that evil. I don't want to say that that's wicked. I, I want to disguise that by saying, well, that's probably not what I'd have done. Or we slip into language that hides or, hides or obscures or downplays the wickedness of something. You know, it was just a misstep or a slip up. Maybe a bit misguided. Just a, just a lapse of judgment. And we can think that that's the loving thing to do. 
But actually the loving thing to do is not to allow evil to hide, but to expose it for what it is so that people can see it and go, I didn't realize I was doing that. And now they can repent of it because they see it for what it is. It can feel loving to fudge it, but it isn't. And that's what Revelation 17 and 18 shows us. They unmasked the beast and the harlot so that we can see evil exposed. So Rome, at the time, in the largest city on, on earth by a mile, and it was sort of regarded as the capital of the world, the glorious city. You may remember in Gladiator, they say Rome is the light. And John is saying, no, 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 it's not. Rome is, look at the darkness. Rome is a scarlet beast, verse 3, a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. It's exposing evil. It's saying, you want to see how lurid and gruesome this city is? And Jerusalem, if that's who this woman, this prostitute is, as I think it is, Jerusalem is a prostitute arrayed in purple and scarlet, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality and drunk with the blood of the martyrs in verses 4 to 6. That is strong language, right? But the Jewish prophets do, do that all the time. The Jewish prophets regularly use the image of a prostitute, a harlot, a whore to describe Israel and say, That's just what Israel has been at many times in her history. She has been an unfaithful wife. She has been immoral. She has turned her back on her lover, God, and gone after other gods, other lovers. And Jesus himself actually says the same thing about Jerusalem. Jesus says Jerusalem is the city where the saints get killed and where the prophets get killed. So John is actually using that kind of imagery, but he wants us to see it in its lurid grimness because he wants us to have evil exposed, evil unmasked. Now we've got to be clear, of course, John is not talking about the physical bricks and mortar of the city or every uh, individual who who lives in it. Right? You, you, you've got to remember in the first century, Rome and Jerusalem were not only places that attacked the church, but they were also locations of probably the two biggest churches in the first century. So John isn't saying everyone who lives in Rome or Jerusalem is going to get killed. In fact, we know that elsewhere in the, Bible, in the book that that's not um, going to be true. There are a lot of believers, a lot of good in those cities. So don't overread the symbolism here in that sense. But what he's doing is he's using these cities to describe the spiritual realities behind these cities, the stronghold, the demonic power at work, and expressing itself in and through these cities as imperial Rome, representing, if you like, state power, and unbelieving Israel, representing, you know, religious power joined together in an attempt to persecute and kill Christians and to draw Christians into worshiping other gods. John wants to make sure that evil is exposed so that we can see how grim it is. It's the equivalent, if you like, of walking into an orgy and turning all the lights on. Imagine how awful that would look and feel. You'd be like, I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to be seen for this vile thing that I'm doing. But you put the lights on as if to say, right, we're not having any more of this concealed in the seedy corners or behind masks. 
It's the equivalent of finding a Klansman at some rally uh, standing up for white supremacy and, and, and coming and, and pulling the, his hood off his head and saying, you will be unmasked so that everyone can see who you are. It's the equivalent of filming undercover footage of an injustice being uh, perpetrated and posting it online which hope happens a lot now, doesn't it? People say, we've seen this take place and we're going to expose it and unmask it so everyone knows this is what happened. Look, you're trying to hide. You're trying to deflect. You're trying not to be known for who you really are. We want you to be seen for who you really are. Not because we hate you, actually, but because we want you and everyone who follows you to repent and recognize how evil this really is. Evil is exposed. But you don't just expose evil, right? Revelation 17 and 18 exposes evil. It says, I I want you to see what it is. But actually, exposing evil on its own is not enough. You don't take the mask off and then everyone goes, all right, yeah, okay. We'll just keep on going and doing, go back to our drunkenness and our orgies, our injustice and our violence. No, the purpose of exposing evil is that evil might be judged. Right? You exposed evil in order to judge it. Because few things are more outrageous than when evil is exposed for what it is and the perpetrator gets away with it. And some of us have lived through that. We've, we've repeatedly seen instances in this nation or in other nations. We say everyone knew that he or she had done it. They were caught doing it and they still get away with it. And you see, exposing sin is not enough. You need to expose sin that, the evil, expose the evil so that the evil might be judged. And our word for the lack of that is the word impunity. It's the idea that someone can do something and knowingly get away with it even though everyone knows that they did it. Many of us remember back in 1992 when the Rodney King uh, beating and then subsequent riots took place. And when there were a lot of people like, wow, these guys, everyone seems to know who did it, and yet they're still not being punished for it. For it. What is this? Or the all too frequent videos of someone like Eric Garner, there's plenty of them, tragically, of these videos of people being killed, maybe by the police, and filmed. And yet justice often, not always, but often, doesn't happen to the person who's done it. There's a, there's a sense of impunity. Evil is exposed. Someone's seen what's going on. I, I, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. People see what's happened, and they're still not being prosecuted for it. And I'm using those stories to illustrate the point that when you expose evil, it's not simply enough to say this is what happened and who did it. What we need is punishment and justice upon the evildoers as well. We need evil to be judged and not just exposed. And God doesn't just expose evil in chapter 17. He judges it in chapter 18. So chapter 17 is really a depiction of the exposing of evil. But in chapter 18, we see the judging of evil. The powers of this world, that is corrupt officials, traffickers, moguls, abusers, whoever they are, all of them, without exception, will face the judgment of God in the end. 
In fact, chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's finally received her comeuppance. She's finally been judged for all the things she's done. And that's actually, that, that it turns into the great hallelujah chorus in chapter 19. You know, hallelujah, hallelujah, you know Handel's Messiah, this very famous piece of music. And the irony is, of course, that a lot of people sing it in sort of middle-class churches like ours all over the place. And they sort of sing it, you know, as we lead into the holidays, you know, hallelujah, hallelujah. And, of course, what they're singing is a song about in which the merchants and rich people of the world are, uh, are, are, are about to be completely trashed because of the injustice they've been committing. And it's sung by people who work as merchants and people, rich people in the world, and they sing it and they celebrate their own judgment. It's a very strange irony of, the, of that passage. Well, in the immediate context, though, that happens as the beast, Rome, turns on the harlot, Jerusalem, and destroys her. And evil frequently does that, actually. Evil often turns on itself. The bad guys turn on one another in the movies, don't they? And one evil power gets judged by the means of another one. But ultimately, John is saying, this is, this is God's judgment. It may be happening by means of the powers of evil turning on each other, but ultimately, it's the judgment of God. Chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. The beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Or chapter 18, verses 5 and 8. God has remembered her iniquities. Mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And passages like this serve... I mean, it's kind of heavy, isn't it, right? It, but, but we need to see the reality of evil exposed and then judged. And there is a great encouragement here for the church, as well as a great warning, actually. There is an encouragement in that all evil will ultimately be judged, and nobody gets away with it. So 18.20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Yeah, God has judged. God has not allowed anyone to get away with things with impunity. There's a great encouragement there. But there's a warning as well. Because all evil will ultimately be judged and nobody gets away with it. Not even you, not even me. And that's why in chapter 18, verse 4, it says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. So it's encouraging that God judges all evil and no one gets away with it, but it's also a warning that God judges all evil and no one gets away with it. So we better make sure that by virtue of living in Babylon, as we do, living in the world in which these powers are at work, that we ourselves don't participate in the same kinds of things. And understand, Babylon is wily, a master of disguise, and we need to be on guard against her ploys. Her city hasn't yet fully fallen, and she's, 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 she'll fight dirty to the bitter end. 
She's in the slave business, and she is determined to do what she can to recapture those whom Christ has freed from her clutches. And she'll, so she'll whisper. She'll whisper prom- promises of sex and wealth and pampered luxury, whatever it takes to replace living faith with dead religion. She'll turn Christian ministry into a springboard for power and self-fulfillment. And she'll even try to to trick the most passionate builders of the New Jerusalem for laying bricks for Babylon. Her dirty fingerprints stain 2,000 years of church history, and her feet still seek to trample the church, and we would be fools to think if we are somehow unaffected by her influence. Just watch what Christians do online. You think, what, you're saying that? You're doing that? Oh my goodness. Because living in Babylon can corrupt the saints. And there's a sense in which we need to both be encouraged about the judgment of evil, but also warned by it. A lot of Christians, you see, misunderstand biblical warnings. They see judgment on Jerusalem, the harlot, at least in my reading, Jerusalem, and they, and they think of the Jews. This is actually a warning for people who think that they are the, of the people of God and therefore that it's okay for them to sin and do whatever they want and be safe from divine judgment. White-collar fraud, gossip, domestic violence, hateful speech, sexual sin. Do you, do you notice in this passage the number of times they mention luxury? Of course, luxury seems to be a selling point in our world, something to be pursued and sought after. But that's one of the things that gets thrown down here. There's a sense in which Christians need to be careful. We need to be careful not to read this and say, oh, well, that was just then, and that was judgment on, the, on Rome and the Jews or anything like that. No, this is talking about people who think, I'm in the people of God, and so I'm going to be fine. Now listen, if we repent, of course we've got nothing to worry about. If you're a repentant person, the last thing I want to do is put any guilt or fear on you. If, if, if you're someone who goes, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I, thank you for the grace that has covered my sins. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes away my sins. If you're that person, this is not a concern for you at all. You can go home saying, I'm justified, I'm righteous. There is no condemnation for me. But if you're a person who says, actually, no, I don't repent. I, I, I carry on doing all of those things, and I don't really care. I, I don't mind that, that God doesn't want me to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. You do have something to worry about. Come out. Come out of her, my people, John is saying, to both them and to us. So evil is exposed but it's exposed that it might be judged. But praise God, Revelation doesn't stop there. Revelation just doesn't leave us with a picture of evil exposed and then evil judged. Revelation also gives us evil removed. Evil in the end gets removed. It gets destroyed. It gets abolished completely. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And John makes that point, you may have noticed as we read it, by six no mores in a row from uh, 
verse 21 on, just no more. No more the city, no more music, no more weddings, no more. It will be absolutely finished off. And interestingly, those six no mores are paralleled by six no longers we find in chapter 21. There will no longer in the new creation, when Babylon has been destroyed, which it has been destroyed from, in the new creation, there will no longer be any sea, any tears, any death, any mourning, any pain, any crying, because the old order has passed away. Evil is exposed so that it might get judged, and it is judged so that it can be removed. And that's so crucial when it comes to thinking about divine judgment, and particularly the doctrine of hell, which just when you thought you, things couldn't get any you know, heavier, but it's, it's, it's worth thinking about. And a helpful phrase I once heard from a Bible teacher that I found really helpful in, in getting my head around this is the phrase, God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth. God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth, right? We often picture um, heaven and hell, uh, like in this first diagram for our online viewers, we picture heaven and hell as, as two future worlds which God will make. And so you have the earth now, and then people from earth either go to hell or they go to heaven, and God sends them to one or the other. But what this phrase is saying is that that's not quite how it is because hell is at work in the world right now, right? We know that from James 3, verse 6 and plenty of other places. Hell is at work in the world now and heaven is at, the, at work in the world now. That's what the gospels are all about. The kingdom of heaven is here, right? So God's agenda is to rid the world of hell and fill it with heaven. And that's where Revelation will finish. It will finish with the removal of hell and throwing, if you like, hell out so that it never blights, again, God's glorious new creation. And that's true of the world. So, so that there's going to be not just no more sea, but no more mourning and crying or pain or death or tears or anything like that because the old order is gone. So it's true of the world. It's also true of cities and civilizations who commit sexual immorality and blasphemy and idolatry and violence. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and found no more. So evil is going to get removed at a global level and at the level of a civilization or a city. But listen, it's also true of, of individuals. It's true of me. Right? God's intention, God's agenda for me for you, is that the evil in our lives also be removed, thrown out by the powerful healing grace of God. God's agenda is to get the hell out of me so that there would only be heaven left. And it's a beautiful teaching that brings such refreshment to my soul because it makes me not worry about which of these destinies, in a sense, might be mine. I'm, I'm standing under. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. I don't, I don't worry about that. But what I do is I rejoice in the fact that God wants to remove all of the symptoms of hell, of sin, of evil, of, and wickedness and death from my life, not just from the world as a whole, and throw it out. That there'd only be heaven left. Crown him the Lord of peace, 
whose power a scepter sways from soul to soul, that sin may cease and all be prayer, prayer and praise. And disciples are, are those people who anticipate that judgment and that reality in the way that we live now. So we repent whenever we have been complicit in evil or partners with Babylon. And we rejoice that evil will ultimately be exposed, judged, and removed. We celebrate it. We say, yeah, one day judgment will come and every last thing that should not have happened, it will be made right and all evil will be removed. And we celebrate that while remaining aware of our contribution to evil. Our confession of our sin and our receiving of the free, abundant waterfall of grace that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ to wash it all away. And that's the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is, Lord, may your kingdom come. May the day of, of righteousness, the righteous rule of Jesus come. Forgive us our sins where we've contributed but deliver us from evil. May we not be partners with Babylon, but may we instead be delivered from her by the powerful working of the grace of God. And so I'd love to just finish this morning by praying the Lord's Prayer together and effectively just bringing again this, this picture of the future back to God and saying, Lord, this is, this is our hope. You are a forgiving, glorious Savior, and we are trusting you to, to rid the world of all the evil and establish your kingdom forever. And so let's, let's pray using the prayer as you find in your worship folder. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.